Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you to take your Bible with me this morning and turn once again to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, the fourth chapter. We have been sailing through the book of Jonah since the month of May, and this morning we find our port in the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. I trust your heart has been encouraged as we discovered the grace of God and His kindness in seeking after and capturing a castaway. Jonah chapter 4 this morning, I want us to focus specifically on the 11th verse, Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11. I'd like to address the theme, God's care for children. God's care for children. Jonah chapter 4, the 11th verse. God is speaking to Jonah and he says, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. Father, this morning, I ask for your special grace in addressing a topic that's seldom considered but often necessary as we would seek to be ministers of wisdom in a hurting world. So, Lord, give me wisdom, help my heart to be tender, but Lord, may emotion be put behind reason at some level so that we together can go out from this place to give answer to the hope that lies within us. Oh, Spirit of God, be our teacher today. Help us to fall in love more with our God today, the one who's everlasting and everlastingly gracious and kind and loving. And Lord, may the fear of the Lord also be our instructor today for those who may have come into this place who as yet have never come to know Christ as Savior. May they hear the gospel and help them to respond by your power, O Lord, for you know unless you draw, there are none who would come. So may the appeal hit the heart and may the Spirit do the work and may people give their lives to Jesus today. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Months after Linda and I were married, there was a special date that entered into our calendar. The doctor confirmed that a little baby would be coming. It was an exciting time, especially exciting, because we were the only two among our siblings who were married. We had the privilege of calling both sides of the family and informing some joyful people on the end of the line, as well as in person, that they were soon to be grandparents. We were planning a nursery and excited about the prospect of bringing a little baby home. Then after about 20 weeks, a great cloud of question that formed and became a cloud of sorrow spread over us. There was no movement. The doctor confirmed that the little one that we were looking forward to meeting had met Jesus first. Our hearts were broken and they were healed by the help of the Spirit of God through the wisdom of the Word of God. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked as a pastor, what happens to babies when they die? It's a frequently asked question after all. 10 to 20% of pregnancies end with miscarriage. That's the loss of a child within the first 20 weeks. Perinatal death, which is death at the time of birth, is a massive challenge globally. 7.5 million babies die at the time of birth around the world every year. 
along with miscarriages and perinatal death, with the death of a child during the time of birth. You compound the challenge with sudden infant death syndrome, and then the atrocity that some would call a woman's right to choose compounds on top of that. And globally, those who study such things tell us that 73 million infants die every year. No wonder people ask the question so often, so what happens to babies when they die? Perhaps someone will ask you that question. It might come soon. It might come in a distant day. Are you ready to give an answer to the question? Can you give answer to every man of the hope that lies within you? What happens to babies when they die? Now, the universalist simply says, well, all souls go to heaven. But there are people who are confused when talking to the universalist, for after all, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16 that he was opening a window into eternity and in hell the rich man lifted up his literal eyes, being in literal torments, and literally cried out to Abraham for some water to be placed on his tongue, for he, after all, was in torment. And so knowing of the reality of hell, there are those who say the universalist has an answer, they'll all go to heaven, but the universalist has no grounding in Scripture to make such an assertion. The Romanist comes along. The answer of the Romanist that's found in the most recently published catechism of the Roman Catholic Church says, listen, I quote, the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. The church does not know any means other than baptism that assures entry into the eternal beatitude or blessing. Then these words in the Catholic catechism as regards children who have died without baptism, their church can only entrust them to the mercy of God. In other words, we have no answer. So say the Lutherans, so say the Anglicans, so say the Episcopalians, so says the Reformed Church, and they've been saying that since the Council of Trent in 1563, only baptized infants go to heaven. Sadder still, there are those who shrug their shoulders and say, we don't really know what happens to babies when they die. And such an answer, of course, gives no hope to that family who faces that inexpressible sorrow. Those who are grieving the loss of a little one, they need and they desire a compassionate, scripturally grounded answer to what is perhaps at that moment in their lives the most pressing question they've ever asked. When they stand at the grave of that little one and they ask, where do babies go when they die? Tradition will not give support in that moment. Sentimentality is not sufficient in that time. Thank God that the Bible teaches where children go when they die. The Bible teaches us that every life conceived is a person. Listen, that every life conceived is a person made in the image of God. The 139th Psalm affirms in verse 13, Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. The 15th verse of Psalm 139, My substance, God, was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously or skillfully wrought or made in the lowest parts of the earth. While mothers provide a temporary shelter for that life that is forming, (laughs) it is God who forms that life. It is God who makes babies. God makes babies 
God engineers the genetic code. He forms together every strand of DNA. There's simply no other explanation that is sufficient than that our Creator God makes every baby who ever comes to be and every baby who is ever conceived is a person in the eyes of God. Take your Bibles for a moment and turn to the book of Exodus. You'll want to mark Jonah chapter 4 for just a moment. Go back with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. The Bible teaches that life inside the womb, that life inside the womb is equal in value to life that is outside of the womb. You say, well, where, where do you find that, Pastor Phelps? Exodus 21. By the way, you may want to take some notes today so you can be prepared to encourage and comfort others when they go through perhaps this trauma that we speak of this morning. Exodus chapter 21, the Bible confirms that life inside the womb is of equal value to life outside of the womb. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22, we read, if men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as a woman's husband will lay upon him. He shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, thou shalt give life for life, life for life. If a man has struck a woman with child so that her child depart from her and the baby die, life for life. An unborn baby is of equal value to a grown man. Life for life. Now, the Bible teaches us that every person formed in the image of God has an eternal destiny. Every person formed in the image of God has an eternal destiny. It's appointed unto man, Hebrews 9 and verse 27, once to die. Every one of us has an after this. That's why it's important for us to know what God's Word says about babies when they die. Over the next several minutes, I'm going to try to unpack some reasons why we can believe that little children go straight to heaven when they die. I want to unpack those reasons from God's Word and reason with you. I would encourage you to listen carefully. This is a strange message. In fact, it's the first time in my years of ministry that on a Sunday morning I've ever addressed this theme. So I want to address it carefully and prayerfully and tenderly. What happens when babies die? I believe that they go straight to heaven. Why do you believe that, Pastor Phelps? If you still have a mark in Jonah chapter 4, the 11th verse gives me my first reason. The character of God assures us that little ones, when they die, they go straight to heaven. The character of God gives us that assurance. Now, the Bible is filled with information about the character of God. Anyone who studies the Bible will come to conclude that God is good all the time and will come to say, all the time, God is good. The very fact that God is introduced to us as a loving Heavenly Father affirms the fact that God is good. As we open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 and ask the question, where do little ones go when they die? I believe that little ones go straight into the arms of a loving Heavenly Father. Because God's goodness kept him from destroying the little ones in Nineveh. Verse 11, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than three or more than six score thousand persons 
120,000. They can't discern between their right hand and their left. As you come to the end of the book of Jonah, you'll remember that there's a tension going on. Jonah is a petulant prophet. He is mad. He's mad because God in his kindness and God in his grace has answered the prayers of the Ninevites who have repented toward God of their evil doing and God has chosen to spare the nation of Assyria at least for now. God has said in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11, should I not spare Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria? God is speaking in his grace and his mercy and his patience of his kindness toward this people group. And Jonah was upset. Jonah had been commissioned to go and warn the Ninevites that wrath, the wrath of God was about to fall upon them. And if anyone deserved it, according to Jonah's worldview, the Assyrians deserved it. They were butchers. They were barbarians. They were cruel and heartless. Jonah believed that these, the enemies of the Jewish people, the enemies of Israel, ought to be destroyed. When he went to preach, he knew something of God, and he says what he knew about God in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. Remember what he said? He said, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. He's actually quoting from the 86th Psalm, one of many passages in the Bible that tells us about the goodness of our Lord. When God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, as he passes by Moses, he says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. The psalmist affirms in Psalm 14, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and he's of tender mercies over all his works. You can literally find scores of verses in your Bible that will affirm the goodness of God. And we conclude, the Lord is good to all. He's good to babies. He's good to little ones. He's good to those who don't have the capacity to understand the marvels of his plan of salvation or accept his grace. He's never unfair. He's never unjust. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of Genesis chapter 18, a rhetorical question is well asked. Shall not the judge of the whole earth do right? And the answer is, of course, yes, our God will always do right. Now, we need to be careful here because there are those who will say God is good. Therefore, those who grow to adulthood in places where the Bible has never been translated or where Jesus' name has never been given, where the truths of the Bible have never been shared, God is good, and so he allows them access into heaven. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Both in the Psalms as well as in the book of Romans, we discover that God holds those who grow to maturity and grow to understanding of moral good and evil, God holds them accountable. First, Ecclesiastes says he plants eternity in their heart. There's no person born anywhere that doesn't realize that God created them. That's why you can go around the world and in every culture you ever visit, you'll find them worshiping something. Why? Because eternity is planted in their heart. And then God is singing to them and speaking to them every day. The 19th Psalm says, the heavens are declaring the glories of the Lord. And the earth is showing, the firmament is showing his handiwork. Day unto day is uttering speech. Night unto night is showing knowledge. There is no language where his word is not being heard so that they can reason. 
and discover, yes, there's a creator. And God, for that revelation, holds them accountable. Romans chapter 1 says, therefore, they're without excuse. Well, what about babies? What about little ones? What about those who don't have the capacity to understand? God is always testifying to those whose minds are alert, to men and women who will live and die anywhere on this planet. But there's a difference. There's a difference between a little one whose eyes never open to see the glories of God, whose conscience is never awakened to reason about God's will. There's a difference between that little one who can never hear the handiwork of God as the birds sing and the forest whispers, and that one who's seen the greatness of God round about. That difference is being defined in Jonah chapter 4. God says, Jonah, don't you think it's right that I spare Nineveh after all? There are 120,000 people in Nineveh, little ones, who don't know their right hand from their left. God is saying, Jonah, I look at babies. I look at little ones. I look at those who have no discernment through wise and loving eyes. Eyes filled with kindness, eyes filled with grace, eyes filled with goodness. It was God's goodness toward the little ones in Nineveh that kept him from bringing judgment upon them. Now for those who see his goodness every day, the word of God is still sure. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. God's goodness kept him from destroying Nineveh because of the little ones. Once before, we can see that true in the work of God. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? Do you remember how the nation of Israel sent 12 spies? And those 12 spies went to spy out the land, and 10 of them came back and they said, while it's a good land, it's filled with giants, and we dare not go into that land. And because of their testimony, fear came upon the people of Israel, and they said, ooh, we can't go in. While we've seen God part the Red Sea, while we've seen God provide manna for us and lead us by a pillar of fire, we still can't go into the land because of fear. They actually said, God, we fear that you're going to let our children die in that land. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, God said, beginning in verse 35, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation that would not go in when God commanded them to do so, surely there shall not one of this evil generation go into that good land. The only exceptions, he explains, are Caleb and Joshua. Then look what he says in verse 39, Deuteronomy 1 and verse 39. Now your little ones which you said would be a prey. And your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they'll go in thither. Unto them I will give it, and they will possess it. The Israelites had accused God, saying, you're going to let us go into this land filled with giants, and our babies are going to be killed. God says, no, 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 you don't understand. Your babies are not going to be victims. Your babies are going to be victorious. I'm going to send them into the land. Why did he do that? Because of his goodness. In his goodness, he was not holding the children of those rebellious parents responsible for the unbelief of their parents. You know, when the German tribes came into Great Britain or England, they brought with them their language, 
Anglo-Saxon. That language was mixed together with the Celtic and Latin dialects that the English people were already exposed to. But now as the Germans came in bringing their Anglo-Saxon into that land and being introduced to a god other than Thor, a god of strength and violence, being introduced rather to a god of love who sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to die for sinners. Those ancient Anglo-Saxons wondered about what word they could use to describe God. They couldn't describe him as Thor, but they knew the word gut. And they discovered that God is gut. He's good. And they extracted just one letter, and they said, God. Why? What a testimony of language, of the testimony of God's word. God is gut. He's good. And he's good all the time. The character of our God helps us to know about the fate of little ones when they die. But there are also confirmations of Scripture that assure us of what happens to little ones when they die, causing us to say they go to heaven. Well, where do you see that, Pastor Phelps? Take your Bible and turn to the book of Job. The book of Job. The oldest book in the Bible, of course, is the book of Job. Job was a very wealthy man. The Bible introduces us to Job as a man blessed with seven sons and three daughters, possessor of 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 1,000 oxen and 500 donkeys. Job 1 in verse 3 says he had a very great household, a very great household indeed. And then came that fateful day when everything he had was lost. Job opens with that tragic story of how his seven sons and his three daughters were taken from him. If you've opened your Bible to Job chapter 3, let's listen in as Job, this righteous man in his generation, this man that God favored with a trial. Let's listen to how Job responds in his trial and what he says. Job 3 and verse 11. It's a down day for Job. Job says, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Or why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then I had been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold who filled their houses with silver, or as in hidden untimely birth I had not been as infants which never saw light. Watch it. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. Job is describing a place of paradise for stillborn children. He's comparing the misery and the sorrow of his life with the rest that they are now enjoying. It would have been better, he says, better if I had died rather than been born. Now Job was a righteous man. He'd enjoyed enormous blessings with family and prosperity, and yet he looks at his life in this moment, this righteous man, and he says, compared to all I've enjoyed, a stillbirth would have been so much better. Why? Verse 17, he says, there I would have been at rest. Job is describing heaven. How do you know, Pastor Phelps? Because hell is never described as a place of rest, and heaven always is. Revelation 14, verse 13, there they do rest from their labors and their works 
to follow them. Job believed that infants went to heaven when they died and enjoyed the rest that God gave. He's not the only one. The wisest person who ever lived believed the same thing. Take your Bibles and go to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, the sixth chapter. Remember, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes is none other than Solomon, a man of wisdom. So let's look what Solomon says about the fate of the unborn or the little ones. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. The words of Solomon, the wise man. If a man begat a hundred children, begetting children or having children was a sign of blessing during the life of Solomon. If a man begat a hundred children and lived many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good or righteousness, and also that he have no burial, burial was a tribute to a virtuous person. If this man lives but his soul has no righteousness, there's no tribute to his goodness at the time of his death, says Solomon. I say that an untimely birth is better than he, than this man that had 100 children who was wealthy and respected in his lifetime but had no godliness in his heart. I say an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. The stillborn child has more rest than this wealthy man. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place. Solomon says it's better to have an untimely birth than to live long without the grace of God. Job and Solomon both testify with regard to the fate of the stillborn, those who die very young, those who die without capacity, preferred death than living long and prospering on the earth and ending up in a hell apart from God. Now, John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, wrote a letter to some young friends who had recently experienced the loss of a little one. In his letter, he said, I hope you're both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants, how many storms they escape, nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they're included in the election of grace. The character of God assures us, the confirmation of scriptures assure us. The compassion of the Savior assures us that when little ones die, they go to heaven. Simply study the life of Jesus and you discover that the songwriter is right when he says, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. The Gospels are filled with the accounts of the Lord's love for little ones. Take your Bibles and go with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we read beginning in verse 15, and they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. Luke 18, verse 15, and when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him, but Jesus called them unto him and said, suffer little children. They brought unto infants, and he calls them little children who come unto me. Forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, or in a humble, childlike, dependent fashion, shall not enter in. 
In verse 16, Jesus lets us peek through the curtain of heaven for just a little bit as he says, such is the kingdom of God. Come back with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then were brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Suffer or allow little children and forbid them not to come unto me. For as such is the kingdom of heaven. He laid his hands on them and they departed. In Luke, they, bought, they brought the littlest of the littlest, the brephos, the infants. In Matthew, they're bringing the pateon, the little children, the dependent ones. In both passages, the Gospels are describing the affection of Jesus for these dependents, these little ones. Go back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at verse 10. Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus is speaking to the rulers of his day when he says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. How think you? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not take the ninety and nine and go into the mountains or leave the ninety and nine going into the mountains to seek the one that's gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say to you, he rejoices more of that sheep than the ninety and nine that went not astray. Even so, is it not the will of your Father which is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish? Now, in many ways, Jesus compares the life of the neophyte Christian, the new believer, you're born again, to the life of being born physically, born again spiritually, born to grow in grace, born physically, to grow physically and emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. These are both lives. There's a spiritual life and there's a physical life. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus is is presenting a very perfect analogy that you don't want to miss. Here's the analogy that Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying God no more wants a spiritual child to perish eternally than he wants a natural child to perish eternally eternally. The spiritual teaching of this passage is based on a truth that we know. We know the value of a natural life. And so now we're coming to understand the value of a spiritual life. The natural truth, that's the premise, the basis of what Jesus is here arguing, the natural truth is this, God protects and preserves little ones. Now the spiritual truth, just like he protects and preserves little ones, even so these who have come to follow after Christ, these spiritual neophytes, these babes in Christ, he protects them as well. You can't have the spiritual application unless you first understand the natural truth upon which it's based. And the natural truth upon which it's based that makes this analogy so powerful is this, verse 14, even so, it's not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Just like he cares For the natural birth and little ones, now he's caring for the spiritual little ones. But it's in that statement that we find our hope. He cares for the little ones physically. We know that naturally. Often I'm asked the question, do you have any kids? Do you have any children? Linda and I answer yes with joy. How many? 
Sometimes we say five, sometimes we say six, sometimes we say eight. Depends on who's asking and how long the conversation needs to be. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Phelps? Well, God gave, gave us two daughters and three sons. God took one of our sons home and gave us the privilege of adopting another son. So we have two plus four, that's six. But then we have two others. One that God gave us and took away when first we were married. One went along the way enjoying the blessing of God adding to our home. God paused that blessing for a while to bring weeping. Today we have three in heaven. One who's in heaven by profession of faith, having come to Christ as Savior. Two who are there that God took ahead of time. Since a person is a person from the moment of conception, I believe that God opens the pearly gates, if you will, and says, allow these little ones to come unto me. Can't you see? Of such is the kingdom of heaven. God's in the business of welcoming the miscarried. God's in the business of welcoming the Sid's death. God's in the business of welcoming the unfirm who are unable to have the capacity to know their left hand from their right. God provides. We serve a good God. Now, there's a fourth reason that I say I believe that little ones go to heaven when they die. Because the conditions of salvation assure us that when little ones die, they go to heaven. What do you mean, Pastor Phelps? Well, the conditions of salvation are clear and they're simple. Thank the Lord. We can read in Acts 16 and verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We can discover in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 that if thou shalt call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. But an unborn child, an infant, one who's incapacitated, has no mental ability, is not able to believe, nor is that one able to call. They can't comprehend the plan of salvation that God saw us in our sin. And God seeing us in our sin and His love sent the Savior to take all of the sin of the world upon Himself as the perfect Lamb of God who died upon the cross for our sins. They can never understand the joy of an empty tomb. They have no ability to understand that Jesus is proven to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. They have no understanding to look up and know that the one who created this world is one day going to reclaim it to himself and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But God looks upon them in a special way. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 34, God calls some innocence. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 4, again, God calls some innocence. Now listen very carefully. There are some who right now become confused because after all, doesn't the Bible say, as in Adam all die? Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Doesn't Psalm 51 say, in sin did our mothers conceive us? That's true. Now let me ask you a question. You were conceived in sin. Sin is passed upon all of us for that all have sinned. So how then comes your salvation? Your salvation comes by grace and grace alone. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Salvation comes by faith but it's always the gift of God. It's always the grace of God. One day, God is going to hold us all accountable for the lives that we've lived. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. 
We're saved, listen, we're saved by grace. But those who don't receive that grace are judged for their works. You're not saved for your works. You're saved from your works. By His work, Jesus' work. Your works can never accomplish what Jesus accomplished once and for all when he gave himself for your sins. You following me? Listen. We're not saved by our works. And so we're not judged for our works of sin. The believer is judged for the works that are done in his name for reward. But the unbeliever, the unbeliever is judged for his works of sin because the unbeliever never received the gift of salvation through Christ. Even so, we read in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Now he's describing the judgment of those who are going to go into the lake of fire, into eternity without God. But where there is no record of works, There could be no justice meted out. Where there's no record of works for which a child is judged, there can be no judgment meted out. The conditions of salvation assure us that our little ones go to heaven. What are those conditions? You must believe. You must receive. You must call. But one who cannot believe and cannot receive and cannot call cannot be judged for their works. Praise God, I believe they fall under the work that Jesus did when Jesus paid it all. You say, Pastor Phelps, that's a bit complex. R.A. Webb addressed this matter when he said, if a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than original sin, there'd be a good reason for the divine mind for judgment because sin's a reality. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason for its suffering Under such circumstances, it would know its suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It cannot tell itself why it is so awfully smitten, and consequently, the whole meaning and significance of the sufferings would be a conscious enigma. The very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation. When babies die, they go straight to heaven. The conditions of salvation make it so. Take your Bibles and come with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we discover finally that the confidence of a prophet assures us that when little ones die, they go to heaven. David, oh, how he sinned with Bathsheba. And how God in his mercy allowed that sin to be revealed. His adultery done in secret became public with the conception of a child. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we discover in verse 16 that David besought the Lord for the child and he fasted, he went in, he lay all night upon the earth. Then we read in verse 18 that on the seventh day, after a week of fasting and prayer and sickness, the little baby died. In verse 19, David's informed about the death of the little one. Then look at verse 20. David rises up, he changes his clothes, and he worships God. The servants are amazed. Verse 21, they say, how is it that he fasted and wept when the child was alive, but he's, he's up and eating now, <laughs> and the child is dead? 
You see David's answer in verse 22. David says, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. Now there are those who will say, David's only talking about the grave. It's the natural order. Unnatural in this case. The baby's died. David's going to die as well. Uh, Folks, David is making a statement based on the comfort that the Spirit of God gave to his heart. Let me just say, there's no comfort in thinking, okay, my child died, one day I'm going to die too. There's no comfort there. David is not saying that. David is saying, I have confidence of a reunion to come. I will go to him. He's not coming to me. That's the same confidence the New Testament believer had. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which sleep, that you sorrow not as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them that sleep in Jesus, will God bring with them? The trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, then we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air. That's a reunion. And that's what comforted David's heart, the same thing that comforts the heart of the New Testament believer. But David was comforted by the thought of a reunion with a baby. And David was a prophet, a man after God's own heart. So when I'm asked, so why do you believe that children who die go straight to heaven? I have the character of God. He's always good. I have the confirmation of scriptures. Job and Solomon believed it. I have the compassion of the Savior who recognizes that of such is the kingdom of God. I have the conditions of salvation to ponder, that there are no works for this child to be judged based upon. And I have the confidence of a prophet. Now, we have some loose ends this morning. So don't pack up, but listen carefully. There are those who are asking right now, well, Pastor Phelps, is there an age of accountability? I prefer to talk about a stage of accountability. There are some who will say, well, 12 seems to be a good time because after all, bar mitzvah, Jesus became a son of the law, Luke chapter 2. There are others who say, no, 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 20 seems a better time because after all, those 20 and up died, but those 20 and below were able to go into the promised land. I don't think the Bible affirms either of those. I think what the Bible teaches and experience confirms is that there comes a time when a child does know his left hand from his right. There comes a time, according to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 16, when they know to refuse the evil and to do the good. There comes a time of moral consciousness. So let me speak to parents for just a minute. Parents, pray that God will open the mind of your child and model the great blessing of a grace-filled life of the joy of the Lord who is your strength. Don't press a child, but pray a child to come to Christ. Pray them in, if you will. Jonah was right when he cried in Jonah chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. That's true. There will come a time when the eyes of their understanding will be open and they'll become accountable before God. Different ages for different children. But when the awareness comes, so comes the responsibility. And so may God help us to ever be lifting up the cross and a gospel framing people. But there's another question. Will my baby be a baby in heaven? No, praise the Lord. 
I don't know about you, but diaper duty in heaven doesn't sound too good to me. First John chapter 3 says in verse 2, when we see him. We're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. Philippians chapter 3 gives us the affirmation. He's going to change these vile bodies and make them like unto his glorified body. When Jesus came out of the grave, he was no baby. When that child comes out of the grave, they'll have a glorified body. Well, then we ask, will that child know me? Will there be a relationship there? Yes, I believe there will be. How do you know that, Pastor Phelps? Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah stood before Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John had never met them before. Moses and Elijah had been in heaven for a long time, and yet when they reappeared on earth, Peter, James, and John listened to Peter who said, hey, we're honored by the presence of these great prophets. Let's build some booths. They knew who they were. Yes. We look forward to embracing those who have gone before us. That God allowed us physically to be the means of their eternal grace and eternal blessing. And finally, a very sensitive question. What if I'm personally responsible for the death of a child? That's a very personal and difficult question. But here's the answer, and it's a wonderful answer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him, whosoever includes you, should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul was responsible for the death of Stephen. Paul and Stephen are in heaven today. Moses was responsible for the death of an Egyptian. Moses is in heaven today. And you, like Paul, even if you're responsible for the death of a little one, can come to know the one who is always good. God is always good. And always full of grace to be able to say with Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, whom I am chief. You see, the Bible settles the question with regard to, is my baby in heaven? But now it's time for you to settle the question. Will you be there too? For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Years ago, God blessed my mother and father with a little baby boy, my brother who died at one day. My father wrote these words, we had looked for you, waited for you with hearts of hope and love. Then you came, a beautiful child sent by our God above. But you didn't stay long, you were taken away. We were left with grief and pain. Our broken hearts cling to the thought that we'd meet again. For the Lord is good. In his ways, we do not always see. He said to you, as he said long ago, let this little one come to me. What might have been, the preacher said, as we lay you beneath the sod. The answer to this will never be known. It's a mystery hidden with God. What must it have been when your mother came to you in that wonderful place? She took you in her arms again and rejoiced before Christ's face. And someday soon we'll all be there. The family will be complete when we meet again in his glory share as we bow 
at Jesus' feet. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.